0: Hi there and welcome to Classics Unlocked, a program brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. I'm Graham Abbott, great to have your company. It seems that every form of human endeavor has its heroes. Whether you're into painting, politics or parkour, there's always a pantheon of people who've somehow excelled and are greatly admired. The arts of course have their heroes too. Painters like Picasso, Da Vinci or Monet. Sculptors like Michelangelo, Bianini or Brancusi. Architects like Palladio Wright or Gehry. The list is endless. When I was a child, I was taught about the three B's of classical music, Bach, Beethoven and Brahms. When it became evident that her son was incredibly musically gifted, Benjamin Britten's mother predicted that he would be the fourth B. Such galleries of notables are helpful to a child starting to come to grips with an art form, but the establishment of a rigid canon can lead to a lot of wonderful things being missed. So while I reject the idea that all western music starts and ends with Bach, Beethoven and Brahms, or even Britain, there's no doubt that these composers created incredible art. Art which can be continually rewarding and constantly exciting. In this program, we're going to focus on part of the huge output of Johannes Brahms. Brahms's life spanned most of the 19th century. He lived from 1833 to 1897. In that time, he created an enormous body of work covering virtually every genre of the period except opera. His piano music, chamber music, songs, choral music and orchestral works are an almost sacred part of the canon of Western music. His orchestral music is particularly powerful, and it's these thirteen works that we'll survey in this program. We'll omit Brahms's orchestrations of piano works such as the Hungarian dances and just focus on works originally conceived for orchestra. The musical examples will be drawn from a series of recordings featuring the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra under their longtime music director Kurt Mazur. Mazur led the Gewandhaus for 26 years, from 1970 to 1996, and from then until his death in 2015, he was the orchestra's conductor laureate. Their recordings of the complete Brahms orchestral works were originally released as a set in 1983, and recently reissued on the Eloquence label. I want to acknowledge, too, the excellent article on Brahms's orchestral music by Walter Frisch in Grove Online, which has been my primary source for this program. We're going to deal with Brahms's orchestral works in their order of opus number, which is almost their order of composition. His first published orchestral work was the first of two serenades, which was composed in 1857 and 58 and published as his Opus 11 in 1860. These early serenades are routinely ignored by most orchestras, but I guess this is probably because Brahms's four symphonies, which are played regularly the world over, are among the greatest treasures of the orchestral repertoire. The serenades are simply overshadowed by what came after them. But let me assure you that the greatness of the symphonies by no means implies any reason to ignore the serenades. These are beautiful, fascinating works which really should be played more often. The first serenade is cast in six movements. Writing a work of this nature removes a great deal of pressure from a composer to be great or original. Writing a serenade implied the creation of a work in a lighter vein unlike a symphony which by the 1860s was regarded as a genre for making grand, important statements. In his mid-twenties, Brahms was testing the waters. He'd already written a great deal of very fine chamber music, solo, piano music, choral music and songs, but orchestral music was quite another matter. So in the first serenade, he's trying out new ideas in manipulating music on an orchestral palette. Echoes of Haydn and early Beethoven can be detected here, but the way Brahms uses his melodies is completely his own. Even the rustic-sounding opening of the first movement seems to prefigure Mahler's ability to evoke the countryside. In 1859, Brahms completed a work he'd begun working on some three years before he even started the first serenade. This was the first piano concerto, a magnificent, powerful work which inhabits a world of drama and invention light years away from the serenades. When Brahms started work on this music, it was originally planned as a work for two pianos, after which he toyed with the idea of making it a symphony. After a year or so, he decided to put his ideas into the form of a piano concerto, and it was in this form that the music was premiered in Hanover in early 1859. Brahms himself was the soloist, and it was published as his Opus 15 a year or two later. If early Beethoven was a model for aspects of the first serenade, then it's clear Beethoven's Ninth Symphony provided some of the inspiration for the first movement of the first piano concerto. The finale seems to pay a debt, in terms of its structure, to the equivalent movement of Beethoven's third piano concerto. But whatever the springboard's brands used, the resultant sound world is entirely his own. It's a work of dark, driven impetuosity, which is nonetheless superbly controlled and inventive at every turn. It's also interesting that the composer uses exactly the same orchestral forces in the concerto as he did in the first serenade, but what a different effect they have. This is the opening of the finale. The soloist is Misha Dichter. <laughs> piano concerto was Brahms's opus 15. His second serenade was published before the concerto but given the following opus number 16. I assume because 15 had been reserved for the concerto. The two works were both completed in 1859. Brahms was still only 26 and it's with the second serenade that we see the composer trying out even more new ideas in his handling of the orchestra. Most obvious among these is the fact that the second serenade uses an orchestra without violins. This allows the woodwinds and the violas to be heard in prominent roles more often than usual. It's cast in five movements with a beautiful slow movement at its centre. Having seen the serenades and the first piano concerto into print, and writing much else besides, of course, Brahms felt ready to tackle the symphonic form proper in 1862. It was in that year he undertook the first work on what would eventually become the first symphony, but it would be another 14 years before it would be completed. During that time, he wrote another orchestral work which could, like the serenades, be seen as a trial work, one in which he could practice his orchestral composition skills separate from the demands of a full-blown symphony. This is not in any way to denigrate the result, the variations on a theme by Haydn, but simply to say that it would have been an excellent stepping stone on the way to getting the first symphony finished. Written in 1873, the Haydn variations were more or less simultaneously composed in two versions, one for orchestra and the other for two pianos. Neither is an arrangement of the other. Rather, both versions have equal authority from the composer. The orchestral version, Opus 56a, is a masterpiece, beautifully scored, with the theme developed over a series of eight variations. This is followed by a finale which is built on a repeated bass line, known as a passacaglia or ground bass, which itself is based on the theme and subjected to a further 17 variations. Yet, like all good sets of variations, think of Elgar's Enigma or Britain's Young Person's Guide, in performance we're not really aware of the variation form. The development of the theme seems organic and natural and endlessly fascinating. As to the theme itself, there is much to suggest that it wasn't composed by Haydn at all, although suggestions of other composers who may have written it, such as Ignaz Pleyel, one of Haydn's students and colleagues, have not been definitely proven either. In the source Brahms used, it's called the St. Anthony Chorale, but this term is also a mystery. No other use of this title is known. These are the fifth and sixth variations. Mamma Finally completed and performed in 1876, Brahms's first symphony was seen as a milestone, not only in his career, but in the development of European music generally. All composers in the mid to late 19th century sensed the shadow of Beethoven, and never would this have been felt more than when attempting to write a symphony. Ever since the premiere of Beethoven's Ninth, more than 40 years earlier, there were many who believed... That the symphony as a form could develop no further. Brahms clearly must have wondered if this was true, given the fact that despite his growing confidence in handling the orchestral medium, it took him 14 years to write his first symphony. Aspects of the first symphony puzzled, even alienated some of its early audiences, but few denied its importance historically. And no one, not even Brahms, denied the influence of Beethoven on the piece. From its journey from darkness to light, as in Beethoven's 5th and Ninth, to its use of a hymn-like melody in the finale, which reminded many of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. There's even a reference of sorts to Beethoven's first symphony, which, like Brahms's first, has slow introductions in both its first and last movements. But Brahms himself shines through in every bar of this magnificent work, from its varied phrase lengths and intricate counterpoint to its breathtaking beauty and overwhelming power. Some labelled it Beethoven's Tenth, but this is to belittle it. Brahms's first showed the way forward for a symphony in a post-Beethoven world, something attempted but not quite achieved in the interim by Berlioz, Mendelssohn and Schumann. It is, quite simply, one of the great landmarks of our musical culture. The first symphony was published as Brahms's Opus 68 in 1877, the year after it was completed and premiered. What's staggering is in that same year he wrote the second symphony, 14 years to write the first, less than a year to write the second, which was premiered in December 1877 and published the following year as his Opus 73. Contrasts of almost every kind are drawn between the first two symphonies. The dark, tragic overtones of much of the first give way to a sunny warmth in the second. But as always with Brahms, there is much to discover beneath the surface, not least the ingenious way in which his themes are developed and varied throughout. The second is perhaps the most easily accessible of the four Brahms symphonies for those coming to his orchestral music for the first time but it's no less skillfully constructed than the first and contains a wealth of fascinating detail for the astute listener. This is the opening of the finale. see Brahms's next work involving an orchestra, the Violin Concerto, Op. 77, as a companion piece to the Second Symphony, and with good reason. Written for, dedicated to, and premiered by the famous Hungarian violinist Josef Joachim, it's in the same key as the Second Symphony, D major, and both have extensive first movements in 3-4 time. Despite some reservations among its early hearers, the Brahms violin concerto is nowadays an absolute cornerstone of the violin repertoire. Along with the Beethoven, Mendelssohn and Tchaikovsky concertos, it's regarded as one of the four great violin concertos of the 19th century. This is the opening of the finale. The soloist is Salvatore Accardo. <laughs> wrote two concert overtures in close succession in 1880, the academic festival overture, opus 80, and the tragic overture, opus 81. The former was composed as a gift for the University of Breslau in response to their offer to Brahms of an honorary doctorate. It's a rather cheeky piece, using a number of well-known student songs and ending with a grandiose setting of that timeless university standard, Gaudiamus Igitur. way of total contrast, the tragic overture inhabits a much darker, more turbulent emotional world. There's no story behind the piece, it doesn't depict a particular tragedy. Rather, the title simply describes the mood of the music, which was deliberately designed as a foil to the academic festival. The Tragic Overture was premiered in Vienna in late December 1880. Eight days later, in early 1881, it was played again at the University of Breslau in the same program which saw the premiere of the Academic Festival Overture. It was in 1881 that Brahms wrote his next orchestral work, The Mighty Second Piano Concerto. I say mighty because despite the power and drama of the youthful first piano concerto, Brahms now, more than 20 years later, produced a work of incredible breadth and maturity, which in some ways puts the first concerto in its place. Many have made the comparison in terms of the first concerto being a youth, whereas the second is an adult. The second piano concerto certainly breaks new ground. It's in four movements rather than the traditional three for a concerto, and it lasts about 50 minutes in performance, making it one of the longest concertos in the standard repertoire. But in those four movements, Brahms explores worlds and creates musical tapestries which are completely new. There's a major solo for the principal cello in the third movement, and the finale covers a multitude of emotional worlds. Brahms himself was the soloist at the premiere in Budapest in 1881, and he went on to perform the work many times across Europe. In this recording of the opening of the fourth movement, the soloist is Misha Dichter. Brahms's third and fourth symphonies make a pair composed in close succession, much like the first and second. The third, his opus 90, is also his shortest and most compact symphony, lasting barely half an hour. It's also that very rare thing, a 19th century symphony which ends quietly. But from the beginning, the trademark Brahms brilliance is on display not least in the way a recurring motif of f a flat f is handled right from the opening bars The third symphony was published in 1884, the same year Brahms began work on what was to be his last essay in the symphonic form, the fourth, Opus 98. It's hard not to read into the last symphony some sense of melancholy, even of farewell, but of course that's only sensed by us with the benefit of hindsight. The fourth symphony was completed 12 years before Brahms' death. He wrote a great deal in those years, he just didn't write another symphony. The fourth also provides us with perhaps the best example of something which is a recurrent feature in so much of this composer's music, an ability to take ideas from the past and yet make them sound totally new. Brahms was aware of the great traditions of the German Baroque, particularly the legacy of J.S. Bach, but also even earlier composers like Heinrich Schütz. Time and again in his vocal music in particular we sense a reverence of the past without ever trying to slavishly copy it. In the fourth symphony's magnificent finale this reverence is again on display when Brahms takes a series of chords adapted from one of Bach's cantatas and writes no fewer than 30 variations on it. The result is a powerful, driven musical canvas, which never sounds dull, but which, like the earlier Haydn variations, is perfectly paced and always heading forward to its powerful conclusion. Brahms wrote one more work involving the orchestra, and it's a work which even these days has many detractors. Sometimes referred to as his Double Concerto, the Concerto for Violin, Cello and Orchestra was composed in 1887 and published the following year as his Opus 102. It was written for Josef Joachim, who had premiered the Violin Concerto, and the cellist Robert Hausmann. These musicians gave the premiere performance with Brahms conducting in Cologne, in October 1887. Brahms was apprehensive about writing a virtuoso work of this nature for instruments, the violin and the cello, that he didn't play. Joachim had collaborated closely with him on the violin concerto, but the two had more recently been estranged for some years, following the end of Joachim's marriage, when Brahms had sided with Joachim's wife in the dispute. The concerto was in fact conceived as a means of reconciliation between the violinist and the composer. Robert Hausmann frequently collaborated in chamber music with Brahms, playing in the premieres of many of Brahms's chamber works, and he was also the cellist in Joachim's String Quartet. Right from the start, there were many who believed Brahms's double concerto was a failure but then, as now, there are many who see in its unusual form a unique masterpiece. Opinions remain strongly divided over it, and we'll end our time together with the conclusion of the last movement with soloists Salvatore Acado and Heinrich Schiff. There can be no doubt that the orchestral music of Brahms, the concertos and symphonies especially, are classics in the sense that they look simultaneously backwards and forwards, in the sense that they say something truly new for their times, and in the sense that they provide a new foundation of their own for composers who followed. They reward endless study and enjoyment, and I hope this brief skim over the surface will encourage you to indulge further in their riches. The recordings used in this program came from a set of the complete Brahms orchestral works featuring the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra under Kurt Masur. These classic recordings have recently been reissued by Decca on the Eloquence label. Technical production for Classics Unlocked is by Tom Ford and Jakub Garoszynski, and I'm Graham Abbott. Catch you next time.